0: Good afternoon, everybody. This is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we are delighted to have Marie Benedict with us this afternoon. She's going to be discussing her brand new book, The Mitford Affair. And um, uh, Marie was kind enough to sign some books for us, although there aren't very many left. I think there are just a handful Um, anyway. Yes. And I'll go ahead and put a link in the comments field if you'd like to buy one of the last remaining ones. Um, and if you have questions for Marie, go ahead and put them in and Barbara will bring me back online towards the end of the hour. So Barbara, over to you.
1: Thank you very much. It's really a treat to see you, Marie. Thank you so Love much it. for doing oh, yeah. this. Now, I carefully printed out the official autobiography to do this and it's sitting across the room in my printer. So I'm just going to read for the back of the book. Yes. What can I say? Marie Benedict is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of The Mystery of Mrs. Christie. I think these are in inverse order from the most recent to- Probably. Right. Her Hidden Genius, The Only Woman in the Room, Lady Clementine, Carnegie's Maid, and The Other Einstein. I'm pretty sure it goes the other direction in terms of time. Anyway, (laughs) they've all been translated into multiple languages. She was in Pittsburgh with her family. And there was a wonderful interview, which I think I did have the presence of mind to print out. Oh, I did. Look at this. Um, In which she speaks about, I think it was in Shelf Awareness, um, why she is writing what she's writing. Um, And I really did like your quote from Yagasi's Homecoming. Do you remember what you
2: said? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm going to butcher it. But basically, I mean, that's one of my favorite books. I think it's such a powerful story. Um, but the gist of the the quote is that um, you need to look into the past and see whose story has not been told, and you need to root out that story and that voice, and only then will you have some sense of history, but not even the full picture. Is that like a very butchered version of it?
1: No, well, slightly, but no, it's okay. Andrew. All right. We believe the one who has power, he's the one who gets to write the story. So when you study history, you must ask yourself, whose story am I missing? Whose voice was suppressed? And you know, years ago, when I lived in another part of the country, in Virginia, actually, um, we had a book club and it was basically a call about women's voices, what we're missing in history. Because most history up until recently was written by men. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we would we would go in and look at like the letters from Lady Delisle or something of the sort. There isn't a whole lot that we get coming down to us from the past. So I think what Maria is doing is really fascinating, which is to look for women who have interesting stories, sometimes really key stories, um, but really never got to tell their story. Um and the Medfords actually are an exception to that in the sense that there has been a ton written about them by the Midford sisters themselves, by the PBS special, the name of which I can't recall. Did you yes. see it years and years ago?
2: I've seen so many documentaries, um, tra- uh, the, the various interpretations of Nancy's books. You know, there have been a lot of um, movies and miniseries based on her novels, which of course are really autobiographical, her novels are. Um, And like you said, the sisters, like even though the Mitford sisters aren't as well known in our time, they were so famous during their day. And each one of the sisters, with the exception of one, wrote their own autobiography, sometimes multiple autobiographies. (laughs) They were prolific letter writers. There's oodles of letters to go through. And it's interesting because unlike a lot of the women I write about, there's actually in some ways an abundance of information about them and yet there's two problems one is very often in those autobiographies in particular the sisters are trying to spin what has transpired without giving away too much but there's you know the sisters engaged some of them more than others but in some um unseemly activity and the way in which they're kind of recasting it you have to ask yourself is this true? And you have to really sift through those autobiographies very carefully to separate the wheat from the chaff. The the letters are a little bit more, you know, a little bit more reliable, but also with the letters, you know, the sisters are, you know, sometimes they're feuding and they're trying to send an olive branch. And so they're recharacterizing the things that they once said. And so all of that um, made this abundance of information a a different sort of challenge than I'm used to. Because like you said, and I love that you had a book club that used to do this. um, So often when we go back into the historical record to try and find these women in the corners and the shadows of history where they've been lost, there's nothing or there's very little because it's only recently that women's histories and documents and records and stories were considered worthy of keeping. And, um, but all that said, even though the Mitfords were well-known and there's all this information about them in some ways, this kind of part of their past is not as well-known. I don't think.
1: Now it's really fascinating. I'm going to hold up one of my personal favorite books, which is a memoir written. Oh, that's your oh, favorite but book. That a well, it was one of my favorite books. But <laughs> this is by Deborah Mitford, the Duchess of Devonshire. And she wrote several things, but this is her memoir called Wait for Me. She's mm-hmm. the youngest of the sisters, and as far as I can determine, the only one who really had what I would call a happy or at least a successful marriage long-term marriage because they celebrated their golden wedding anniversary she outlived her husband Um, and despite numerous miscarriages or other disastrous things with her pregnancy she did produce a surviving son and one or two surviving daughters so she really has you know the long-term I think the happiest life but we're not actually here to talk about her well, but we, we are. I'm and just. and I get time to talk about Deborah because I just. We
2: have to talk about Deborah because can I just tell people who are listening, you have a personal relationship with her and have spent time with her, time with her at her home, Chatsworth, her fabulous estate. So we have to leave time to talk about that because I have so many questions. Okay,
1: well we do. I also saved because in the book this is Liesel uh review in the New York Times of wait for me. Um, and she has a lot of fascinating things to say because she did a deep dive into Deborah and the book. So we have enough material here for at least three hours, but we only have one.
2: Oh, so, there's
1: so much information. So we'll we'll move on here. But um, one of the things I have discovered, Marie, and I'd be interested in your research, how much about this you found out, is that um, the mother, who known as Merv, but anyway, the mother of the oh, yeah. sisters and one son, and yeah. the son, both were Germanophiliacs, which I had no idea that the mother was very much leaning towards Germany, and the son, Tom, yeah. died fighting in 1945, but he died in Burma because at his request, he did mm-hmm. not want to fight in the European theater and kill Germans,
2: right, so, had such an affinity with them, yeah. you know, what was so fascinating to me about this time period and of course two of the sisters take this to levels are, that are unimaginable diana and unity but there was this really large faction of upper class aristocratic british society that felt a kinship with the nazis and you know of course in part that stems from the fact that there's a lot of historical cultural familial connections between, you know, sort of the upper ranks of German society and English society. But it was more than that. Um, You know, what I kind of have learned in the research that I did for these sisters and, and elsewhere, too, is that, you know, a lot we don't when we as Americans look at what was happening in the years leading up to World War II, we can see that the political playing field is getting very polarized and very complicated and that there's Fascism on the rise, obviously, with Italy and Germany and Spain, communism is is starting to rear its head in a very powerful way with Russia and some other entities. But we don't think about that as playing out in any strong way in Great Britain. You know, we think about that as a continental Europe issue, but in fact, during this time period, there, the factions are gaining footholds in Great Britain, and there's a large Faction, surprisingly large faction of British society, some not upper class, but definitely upper class, um, that are that are supporters of fascism. Because when they look at the playing field and they see in the battle between communism and fascism, what what political system is going to be most likely to let them keep their estates and their titles and the dwindling funds that they have? Because you know there's a worldwide economic depression during this time. So learning about this this these movements and the the power that they had within great britain was really astonishing to me and it and it puts the story of what happens to the midford sisters in context really important context
1: well we shouldn't leave out edward VIII, um even though he didn't (laughs) take the throne but his leanings were nazi and you know one of the things i've always loved is that winston churchill was actually a supporter of edward marrying wallace simpson and later after the war, or even during the war, he said something I've always loved. He said the British people should raise a cross in every marketplace to Mrs. Simpson, because she took Edward off the throne. So <laughs> yes. This happened. I thought, go Winnie, you know, that's really yeah. true. I think, I mean, you know, the, the, royal, like it is? <laughs> yeah, the royal family was German, you know, all the way back to 1715, when they brought in the Hanoverians, there right. was always an anti-Semitic street. Um, among many of the British upper class, so that part sort of worked. Um, yeah. I think The Spanish Civil War really is illustrated for them, which, after all, had been going since, what, 1936, um, yeah. that, you know, communism was really terrifying. And, you know, in Spain, That's we right. had a war actually between fascism and communism going on. So I agree with Marie that fascism was going to be a more acceptable uh, right. regime to the British. If they were going to see, I think, I honestly think Marie, that it was only Churchill who kept the British strong enough um, and dedicated enough without him. I think they would have gone right under, I mean, really, you know, if you subscribe to the great man theory of history, Churchill is right up there with one who, you know, really did hold the
2: line and change the course of how it went. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I hope that if he, you know, hadn't been ringing that bell, um, about the the dangers of Nazism and fascism all along, that somebody else would have filled that void, but the the leaning towards appeasement was so strong among so many ranks from the top down. Um, people had no appetite for another war. You know, the World War One, the Great War as they called it, was really not that far off, um, and yet. People could see what was happening and they were turning a blind eye, you know, as a way of denying and avoiding the reality. And that was Winston's true bravery is persevering um, in in clanging that bell about what was coming down the pike, Um, regardless of the hit it was he took personally to his power. To his standing in society. I mean, he and Clementine were like pariahs in the le- in the years leading up to World War II, because they were saying what people secretly really knew but didn't want to hear. And
1: yeah, absolutely. And you know, I don't know how many Americans realize we did not declare war on Hitler and on Germany. After Pearl Harbor, we declared war on Japan, but it was Hitler who rolled the dice one more time, first against Russia and then against the United States. Hitler declared war on the United States as a kind of preemptive move. But there was no real appetite in the United States for going to war against the Nazis. We were compelled into war against Japan by Pearl Harbor, but not the other way. So it is difficult. And, you know, we see it playing out all over again with, you know, Russia and the Ukraine. So nothing mm-hmm.
2: anyway um your
1: focus on this was really on um on diana and unity and yeah. their sister nancy mm-hmm. and i have to say i read this very carefully about diana and i am still kind of unable to grasp her so mm-hmm. you know i i mean there she was she had an adoring extremely rich husband she had two children she yes. was part of upper crust british society and it appears that she absolutely fell into what sexual thrall with Osmold Mosley. I can't account. She wasn't that committed to fascism. She was no. as far as I could tell, she was absolutely besotted with besotted.
0: Mosley
2: and remains so. That's the perfect word for it. And and it is so, you know, when the book opens and and really throughout, it's it's incomprehensible. The, the society can't understand it, her sisters can't understand it. I can't understand it. She had this this bright, adoring husband um, who absolutely just thought she walked on water. She had every, you know, her own family had, even though of course it's all relative, they had been in financial difficulties for years and suddenly that problem was taken care of for her. She was at the pinnacle of high society. um, And yet- it was as though Oswald Mosley spoke to a part of her, a void. He filled a void in her that was inexplicable and invisible to everybody else. And he, as you said, he became um, her obsession. And with that came the obsession of his obsession, right? Which was fascism. Um, and, um, you know, people could not believe, it. you know, he was married. He had no intention of leaving his wife. She left her husband to be his mistress and she did not care the damage that was going to be done to her reputation to her standing to her financial situation to her children she didn't care and as time went on shockingly that never wavered i know that's amazing <laughs> in the worst of circumstances i have to tell you the thing that kind of um helped me understand her not empathize with her not not, not explain away what she did, but there's an interview of Diana. Um, I think it's on the BBC. I can't remember. I've looked at, I've looked at quite a few, but there's this one and she's much older. She's in her seventies, um, maybe eighties. She's stunningly beautiful. I mean, time has done nothing to her, her striking looks, but also this quality that she had this, this serene reserved Sphinx like quality that, that really drew people to her. Um, and that has remained, you know, given all that she's been through without giving too many spoilers a lot. Um, and she, you know, she's in the business in this interview of saying what she thinks is appropriate. Um, For people to hear about what happens during the lead up to World War II and during World War II, Um, she's explaining Mosley's fascism. She's explaining her relationship with Hitler because we haven't said it uh, outright, but she, you know, the next step to her obsession with Mosley and fascism is her becoming part of the Nazi inner circle. And that happens through her sister Unity. Um, And she, unlike Unity, exploits that for Mosley's gain and for the gain of the British Union of Fascists. Those relationships, it's very calculated. It's very intentional. Um, It's very knowing. And in this interview, you see her taking these same events, these same chilling events that she engaged in and explain them in a way that she, she knows is more palatable. And yet, Just beneath the surface, you can see she still maintains the same beliefs. It's as if Oswald Mosley cast a spell on her on that dance floor that I show at the beginning of the book, and the spell never lifts. And she will go to any lengths to preserve that relationship and lift him up to a position of power because that will secure her tie to him forever. And even all these years later, and watching that interview and seeing her explain away the events that I knew she was about to, that she had already engaged in, but was about to engage in in my story, it helped me channel her and her unshakable self confidence, the the force of her will, and her, her, her rapacious ability to do whatever was necessary. To achieve her goals, including you know whatever impact it was going to have on her family. Well, she threw
1: everybody under the bus for it, no question about it. You know, all I could I like think of, you made there was some moment in the book where you pointed out that everything had been too easy for her. You know, she was beautiful. She had this adoring husband. You know, she had two children who were healthy, which you know wasn't all that easy to do necessarily early, in the 1930s. She had everything that anybody really like her in her position ever wanted and you know I think that the void inside her was that was she was bored she was all too easy and it didn't mean anything to her as a result so I think of her as kind of this empty vessel you know that that Oswald filled up now unity was similar Mm -hmm. but because it didn't all go well for her she was sort of like the you know the the Antithesis in a way. Yeah. You know, she was too tall. She wasn't particularly attractive. She wasn't, um, you know, she wasn't charming. She, nothing right. went well for her.
2: No. So Diana,
1: I mean, they were like two sides, you know, of the moon in that respect. Right. And I think, I think, you know, she wasn't enthralled with Oswald. I don't think it was no. the Hitler. So both of them needed a cause. And it reminded me years and years ago, I had a stepson who um, really had a terrible time with drugs. I mean, he just could not get off drugs and whatever. And what happened with with him and with other people like him is they substituted Christianity. They got born again. And mm-hmm. the, the Christianity filled up the void that right. the drugs, that form of Christianity, I don't mean Christianity in general, that, yeah. that that the drugs had filled up, you know? And it was as though they couldn't, they couldn't face life with this inner hollow. So they find something. And the way they got off drugs was to become absolutely, you know.
2: Have um, something else to Angelical. Well, and you, and I do point this out in the book, as you mentioned, but it's like, mostly she could never really have mostly. He's unattainable. Even when he marries her, even when they have children together, he will never really ever be hers. And he's the ever elusive goal and i think you're right like when you're somebody who to whom everything comes with a wave of a hand um suddenly you meet your match and this is not someone she can have so easily and and it's somebody for whom she can work her wiles and set all these challenges up for herself i mean what she is able to effectuate on mosley's behalf the things she's able to obtain for him from hitler directly are are mind boggling absolutely mind boggling i mean the whole thing is mind boggling you have two women who for all intents and purposes are are uneducated teenagers right diana maybe is 21 when this all these events happen um they're they've been raised like feral cats right they have no formal education they're aristocratic but they're uh, you know they're self they're self-educated they they've been raised in this most peculiar manner And yet they tromp across England, not England, excuse me, Europe in this tumultuous time period and insinuate themselves through just through force of will into the highest ranks of Nazi society. These two women, unity especially, have the greatest access to Hitler of any English person ever. Yeah. And it's 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 true. they set out to, to do it. And now, of course, he was using them too, to some extent uh, in his own propaganda campaigns. You know, you have these two. Now, people always said unity wasn't um, pretty. I think that unity, if you look at her in a lot of who she is attractive. I think it was like Mitford lore that unity was the least attractive, right? And poor unity, I think she believed it, you know? I think, you know, you get told something enough times, by your sisters who are very snarky and competitive, you're going to start to think it. I mean, certainly she was the tallest. Certainly she was the most ungainly. Certainly she was the most peculiar socially. You know, she had so many, and this is a woman who bought snakes and rats to balls. I mean, she just did not to interact in society and she needed something to make her stand out. Right. And for her, it was going to be fascism and Hitler and she was going to be the right-hand person of the Nazi movement. And um, that was going to be her calling card. And somehow, despite all the barricades in her way, she she attains that, which is just shocking. And I digress. Well,
1: you know, I'm... we could use the modern idiom and say, you know, that unity was looking for agency and found it. And, yeah. you, know, you know, also, I think maybe in a way, maybe, maybe just being adored, you know, maybe being yeah. beautiful and rich and all just was completely unfulfilling.
2: Yeah, um, well, she and- was a very great woman. I mean, I'm sure just, you know, re- being the recipient of admiration was not an intellectual challenge for her. Right. And, you know, I'm sure there, and there weren't a lot of outlets for that at that time and in her station, but, you know, Hitler exploited them too. You know, they, here you have these two beautiful english women who are very well connected and in fact they're well connected with the person who's speaking out against hitler nonstop in great britain and you know it's another way for him to for hitler to connect with this this faction of upper crust british society that may form a bridge for him should he be able to conquer great britain
1: right um, well, the midfords were cousins to clementine churchill so, yeah. you know, that's where that comes from, you know, I was thinking when I was reading it, that in their way, they were really the Kardashians of, you know, that time. Um, okay. There was a, a glamour to them, you know, bright young things, because that was a thing. Um, right. And I remember, and I wish I, I wish I'd looked it up, and I'm sorry I didn't, but Masterpiece Theater actually did a program about the Stales when they were young. You really? Know, Lord and, yeah, Lord and I, I remember. See, you're not as old as I am, so you don't you don't remember all that. I
2: look that one up because I, th- I felt like I'd seen everything really, No, you really should
1: because it was very well done, and you know it was basically their feral childhood out in the country. It wasn't you know the the later life stuff, but it was how they grew up. You know the fact that the. He was only the second baron, if I yeah. recall. I'd love to know the mother's background and why she was, in fact, so you know, enthralled with German society and so forth. Um, and you know, they lost their money; they made yeah. a lot of bad investment decisions and also they went from a reasonable estate to you know, downhill. So that yeah. was part of it. Um, and you know, the other let's remember that Nancy was. novelist and a satirist and possibly the most famous literally jessica younger is also a writer but also became a communist also immigrated to california uh Mm -hmm. pamela um married very question an older man if you look up pamela she didn't have a and she was the one who still loved the country she didn't want she was a country mouse versus a city mouse,
0: city mouse. so yeah.
1: she's kind of the least known unity we won't go into for spoilers but a wasted yeah. life
2: so we come back to deborah my favorite one okay the one so let's deborah so the De- so i have some questions for you deborah you know she kind of falls a little bit outside the scope of the book because she she's so young she's right. the youngest of the six um and, you know in the latter chapters you know we're, we're started out in 1932 and it ends i think it's definitely after war is declared. So several years later, she's out in society, but she's still very young throughout the course of this book. And um, can you tell people, because I remember when we talked about her hidden genius, you told me about your encounters with and um, relationship with.
1: Well, it wasn't a relationship, but I did spend um, in my midlife crisis back in the 1980s. I, I went to live in England for almost a year. And it was um, it was my time to visit like every National Trust property, every cathedral, every stately home or whatever. And I'd always been entranced by Chatsworth because one of my favorite women, I'm going to talk Marie into doing this sometime. Oh, I love, can we'll you call talk about her? Elizabeth Shrewsbury, who is one of the most remarkable women I think ever to have. She pulled herself up from being an orphan in Ward to um the richest woman in England next to Queen Elizabeth. Her last husband was the jailer of Mary Queen of Scots. She was in fact, the person who kept Mary Queen of Scots at Hardwick Hall. She married up every single time and acquired so much wealth that the Devonshires, and there was another Ducal family, which is now, I can't remember the name of it, is now gone into abeyance. They are still living on the property and the things that she acquired. In the 16th century, she was an astonishing businesswoman. I mean, just just amazing. So I was always entranced with Chatsworth and her story, and I made it a point to go there. Now, each of them—the Duke and the Duchess, Deborah and her husband uh, Anthony—who inherited, he inherited the dukedom when his older brother right. was married to Kathleen Kennedy. Right. Both of them died very young in the war, without children. Um, The father, Joe Kennedy, was the ambassador to England in the late 1930s. His daughter, Kathleen, known as Kick, married the Marquess of, I'm trying to remember, starts with an H, whatever it is. Anyway, whatever the title of the eldest Devonshire son was. He died, and then she died in a plane crash. And so all of a sudden, Deborah, who had married the second son, um, suddenly they became the heir... You know, whatever. And when they inherited Chatsworth, it was devastated by the economics of two world wars and uh, labor had put in these astonishing inheritance taxes, which beggared family after family. And the Devonshires owned Hardwick Hall, the place that Elizabeth Shrewsbury had kept Mary, Queen of Scots, but they were able to sell it. It's an, it's just an amazing building. It's one of my favorite places to go because Elizabeth Shrewsbury, the tax. this is really going too far, but I'm going to tell you anyway.
2: Never text, for me. Never for The
1: big tax in Elizabethan England was on windows because glass was new and glass really? was show-offy. And so Elizabeth Shrewsbury, I have a photo of it in here. I love that so much. She actually basically did a sort of up yours. And she built a place called Hardway Call. And it's all about the windows. They are absolutely giant and blinding. Here it is right here. if You can see it. And
2: oh my gosh, and they're and huge.
1: Sometimes people went up on the roof to party. So they had all these fancy roof things. And anyway, anyway, because she was so rich, she put these amazing windows into Hardway Call to basically say, so I can afford it. Yep. <laughs> so the Devonshires who'd held on to it all this time, and it currently houses all the needlework that Mary Queen of Scots and her ladies did, which is what they did forever. Um, they were able to sell Hardwick Hall for enough money to reinvest it in Chatsworth, and part of that was that she turned it into the economic engine that it would have been. And she and the Duke each built a essentially a B and B or an inn on the property. So I stayed in hers. She developed a shop. She developed, you know, tourism. She did everything she could, and thanks to her, Chatsworth has survived and really flourished. She lived to 2010. I think she was 90. Yeah. When yeah she,
2: she had led a very long life she, I mean, do, do you feel like she was like um one of the original ones to understand the way in which these estates could be monetized and kind of made commercial
1: Absolutely. and it may have been because of her sisters and their childhood that she saw what fame and celebrity could actually accomplish yeah, she may right. have been better educated than the rest of them um, yeah i'm not entirely sure about that um, She needs better tutoring yeah, um, but she obviously had real character, um, and she yeah. obviously made a, a, As I say, I, who knows whether it was happy? She made a very successful marriage. And right. Both she and her husband made the transition to becoming Duke and Duchess. Where they were always going to be the spares, and spares all, you know, on our minds at the moment.
2: Exactly. Prince, we know Prince
1: all about the Can't deal with being a spare, but actually, Deborah and um, and her husband were the spares, and were happy with that. And it wasn't all that wonderful to suddenly become the heir because the, the burdens of it were so great. Anyway, I met her when I stayed at her hotel. And what was she like? Well, she was, and then also in the shop, she was very elegant um, in a way that you have to, I think, be born to it. Mm-hmm. You can look at their photos. You've done that, obviously. Oh, yeah, Their facial structure was really pretty. Pretty much yeah. the same. I mean, it was Diana was maybe the most flamboyant. I don't not flamboyant. Right.
2: Maybe she the was the more friendly. striking. I think she
1: was. Yeah, um, but Deborah, they 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 looked quite a lot alike. Um, you know, and they had that kind of long limbed aristocracy thing. You know, they were taught right. to dress. Um, right, they had all that. But she had a really. She was, in many ways, a country woman because she, you know, had had that childhood rummaging around in their various estates, right and she understood how the land work a similar thing has happened to Sissinghurst where uh, Vita Sackville West and her husband Nigel Nicholson created this estate because because Vita was an illegitimate heir to an enormous property nearby and never got over it she bought this property and created these amazing gardens and all but her children have turned Sissinghurst into one of the most successful economic properties in England. They they grow their own produce. They have an enormous restaurant. You can barely get in. It's fabulous. I mean, it's fabulous to go there. And Deborah really did the same thing for Chatsworth and it's still running out. Anyway, because I was staying there and they had a resident chef, when you're staying in a British hotel, you get breakfast is just part of what happens. And the chef, one day I was sitting there like the third or fourth day about to order breakfast and this giant figure Appeared beside me in a white toque and a white whatever it is. And he introduced himself and he said, I've been watching what you've been ordering. And he said, You're the only American that's ever been brave enough to order black pudding. So he <laughs> said, I wonder if you would like to come and have dinner in the kitchen this evening and I will cook for you. And I thought, well, okay. So whatever. I can I do need.
2: that. I can
1: definitely yep. do that. So I, I held up my hand and I did that. And when I arrived in the kitchen and my own little table and, you know, the whole bit and the staff and out, there was the Duchess. She Seriously, met, yep so you know she didn't dine with me but she came over and sat down and spoke to me and you know I complimented her on because I'd been through the house by then and the whole bit and you know we had a really nice conversation um, wow you've been like so you it's are awesome.
2: the only person I know that actually knew a Mitford
1: well I don't think no is fair but I met her and that was in 1986 so she she was still I'm trying to remember if Andrew was still alive but she was she still had 14 years to go
2: yeah oh yeah I mean she had a very long successful life like you said marriage family I almost feel and you know she lived through not just the war but everything her sisters did in the war Mm -hmm. and without giving away too much but um and the backlash that came from that, from their actions, large and small, you know, um, the mother, Sydney was quote, their mother was quoted as saying, anytime I see the phrase peers daughter in a headline or in a newspaper, I know it's about one of you girls. And she didn't mean that as a compliment. She meant like, what is the next thing? And I think for a young girl, like Deborah, young teen, and then into her later teens, that must have, love such an impression on her, you know, is that the kind of life you want to lead, you know, she sees her sisters uh, at the top of the heap socially, and then reviled and exiled, she sees her sister, you know, in the society pages, and then in the headlines. And that had to have, I mean, I look at her as the one who led the most successful life, and the most in some ways traditional, right? Right. Um, Even though she was not traditional in the sense that she kind of created this fabulous industry around Chatsworth. um, It was like she was determined to make it work. She did not want to end up like her sisters. No,
1: that's absolutely true. But here's the thing that I think is also we're thinking about. She married Andrew in 1941. And Mm -hmm. all of the scandal, all of this was going on yeah and andrew who came from one of the premier you know there are not very many despite all the regency romances there are only like 12 dukedoms in england that's oh, it read regency mean,
2: they were at the tippity top <laughs> but
1: my point is that andrew still married her i know think I- about it you know i think it's astonishing that the, you know, that the Devonshires actually welcomed her into the family and Andrew married her as the mother of his, you know, children and at that time he was not the heir, true, but it, no. what really says a lot for the for the Devonshires that this scandalous you know, if you read Pride and Prejudice you have to ask yourself, what the hell you know, was, was going on there? I mean, would you really right. want
2: to marry into the Bennett family? No! Oh my god, you no. Know, In the mid were so much worse. I mean, and as you said, we're in world war II. I I, I can't, I wish I could say what the sisters act, what the state of the sisters at the time Deborah got married. It was, it was beyond imagining what they, what they were, what they had done. And, and the fact that two things that the family accepted her, like you said, I mean, she would have been the last One, I would have want my, the last person I would have wanted my son to marry at that time, probably. And secondly, how much they must have cared for one another that they got married, right? Yeah. I mean, he could have his pick, you know, he really could. And he chose her above all others. And I don't know if, you know, you never know what happens in the the course of a relationship, but boy, they started off. Um, they must have been very, very connected to one another.
1: They have yeah. to have been because the truth is you don't just marry a person, you also marry their family. So right. he actually took on Ugh. you <laughs> know Oswald Mosley, the whole bit. you know. I've right. often thought that you know it's you have to give him credit for. Oh, that. 100%. And I think that, that that partly explains, I think, why she was so determined that yep. when Shatsworth became theirs that you know she was going to make it work. She wasn't going to let it go. She wasn't going to let it fall apart. And, you know, and she stuck to that all the way through. It's also, they were a long live family. If you think about, you know, um, they really were. She lived to be 90 something, I guess. Yeah, she um, was. Diana lived for a long time after the war. Um, oh
2: my gosh, for decades. Yeah, I mean.
1: um, and Pamela, I mean, there's a photo in, in the biography I showed you of Diana and Pamela and Deborah at mm-hmm. chatsworth um jessica died fairly young if i remember she yeah, gets, I can't remember what happened to her and nancy we know because you talk about it yeah. in the book nancy um died yeah. in france after, um, after the war. and even there you know you talk about the way that diana trying to do something good but really underhanded for nancy nancy was engaged for several years to yeah. a clear um gay
0: man um, um, yeah
1: Yep, a gay man at a time when it was still illegal yeah. um, in Britain. So, you know, the whole idea of the beard came along. But and there were right. plenty of gay men who did marry and have children for various reasons. And then it was all sort of anyway. Nancy was forever engaged to this guy and he kept putting off their engagement and all. And finally, Diana um intervened. And, and you know, but that that's a terrible thing to do to a sister, even if you meet oh. well.
2: Exactly. She felt like she knew best always. And she was, I mean, and again, this is like my fictional Diana, but it's the, my best way of understanding a woman who could do what she did um, to her family and take the steps. She had to have such extreme confidence, not just in the choices she made, but in her power over people. She believed that she could do anything without repercussions, and she had the power to effectuate whatever goal she set her mind to, because that had always been the way for her. You know, things came very, very easily to her since she was a child, all throughout, you know, into her young adulthood, and that turned out to be no exception as she progressed in, you know, in, up into World War Two. And, you know, Nancy was another one, you know, well, she knew what was best for Nancy. She was going to take care of this errant so-called fiance and and cut it off. That was going to be that. That was that. Um, but the, the events that transpired in the war, you know, Diana and Nancy, um, you know, there, there were many rifts between them. Sometimes they came back together again, sometimes It was longer. Um, And the rift that happened as a result of this between say Jessica and Diana was one that never really came back together again. You know, they never, but, but for example, Deborah, who, you know, who you met as far as I could tell, she remained in contact with all of her sisters, no matter how embarrassing or horrible that might've been for the Devonshire family. Right. She still had long-term relationships with her sisters and, and even her parents, I mean, the parents, but, but obviously to do that, she had
1: to have Andrew's backing. He, exactly. he never apparently would not, apparently never said to her, you know, you're going to have to choose, or this right. is not appropriate or whatever. So
2: yeah, yeah I mean, it would have been, it would have been at some point appropriate for him, for them not to see, say Diana in most. Right. Absolutely. I think, um, without giving it too much away, you know, the, the manner in which they spent the war and the repercussions afterwards. A lot of people would have felt that way.
1: Absolutely. You know, know, I mean, and mostly it wasn't just his relationship with Diana, but he was married to, what was it, a Cunard heiress or whatever it was. And then then he took up with her sister when his wife died unexpectedly, his her sister became his mistress. Meantime, there was still Diana. Diana. So so Nancy's the oldest, Diana
2: is the next. The is Pamela segment. the third one actually I think Pamela is the second oldest and then Diana but I could have that wrong
1: I always thought it was Diana was second maybe
2: Diana and then Pamela I mean, and Diana. I think Tom is in there between maybe but I think Tom was the closest in age to Diana <laughs> and actually at certain points they were very close you yeah. know how the sisters all formed these different factions at different stages and then they reinvented them and re reconnected and regrouped Tom until he kind of left for um, boarding school, he and Diana were kind of a little bit of a pair. Um, so he factored in there. But then, even though, I mean, he himself was had espoused a lot of the beliefs that the sisters did. I don't focus on him as much in the story because he's not as physically present um as some of the sisters, but he had a lot of the same friendships and connections. and,
1: yeah, no, and he was definitely pro-German, which I come back to. He, you know, he wasn't willing. He wasn't able to not go fight for England, but he insisted on fighting in the Asian theater, which is why he died in Burma um, That's right. in 1945. And he died unmarried,
2: um, or at least without children. I don't I don't remember. Was he married? I don't think he no, was. No, he never married. And he dabbled in relationships of all sorts. His from you know what some of the biographies say, his favorite was a married woman.
1: Hmm and probably so, nice because a lot of them were bisexual whatever right. anyway um so tom died and i think that was the end yeah. of the reedsdale baronetcy whatever it was right. died with him so right. you know a really complicated family and and in, in that way, you know in their way that that whole german i mean sorry british eccentric aristocracy they had enough money to do whatever they wanted they had right. enough you know social privilege to do what right. they wanted. I'm not sure that, you know, maybe the aristocracy in other countries produced similar, and we just don't know them as well, because, you right. know, obviously we can read more about the British ones than like right. the true. Hungarian or yeah. something of the sort. But, you know, I've always remembered reading somewhere about, you know, the, the 18th century, you know, that the, the young men who belonged to the aristocracy really thought of themselves as lords of the earth. You they know, were. they went forth to colonize and do the most extraordinary things all the way around the world that only people who were absolutely armored in self confidence and had, you know, money or something behind them really could have left that little island and gone off, you know,
2: and subdued most of the world. I mean, it really was an incredible thing. I almost believe that had Diana been a man, that would have been who she was. Mm that is the sort of hubris and self-confidence that she operated with in the world. And I think, I think, you know, the fact that she grew up a woman stymied that, that natural sense of, of power and entitlement that she had. Um, and I think it explains to some extent, to the extent it's explainable some of the actions that she engages in. I mean the other thing that's fascinating and kind of part and parcel with what you're saying is that you know, when I was looking at, at what the what Diana and Unity in particular did and how they insinuated themselves into the upper echelons of fascism in, you know, England and and Germany in the Nazi party, a lot of their ability to do that is because the the aristocracy and the leaders of the countries were the same thing right there there weren't a lot there yes there were some people who didn't grow up with the same with titles and such who rose to power but it was a small group that were both moneyed and titled in leaders and so the girls the midford sisters had access that that a, a normal person would never have had the difference is what they did with that access um how they exploited that access not for, you know, great lofty values and ideals, but for personal gain, whatever that personal gain was. Um, and that was one of the things I really tried to unpuzzle in the book is how can people not seemingly normal, because these sisters are are really not that normal, but, you know, girls who grow up with a lot of benefits and affluence and advantages, how could they be so attracted to these extreme movements? And then once they're attracted to them, how did they manage to do the sorts of things that they did to well, that's very, that's
1: very true. true. And wow. it's not just you know, Diana Unity went to fascism, but Jessica was a dedicated communist. So three <laughs> And I she mean, Deborah was the only one who had a, you know had a a sort of expected, life for somebody you know somebody like her and the other ones well pamela really did too but hers was not you know glamorous i mean she married well, so poorly, she, but
2: actually she um you know her first husband um the physicist his name is escaping me right now but yeah. but the, the two of them definitely had fascist beliefs and and were not afraid to say them and in the end um if you recall there's a point at which. Um, Diana, I'm trying to think about how to say this, Diana and her kin are are really have nowhere else to go. And it's Pamela and her husband who bring them in. And the reason they do that is because they, at that point, they really don't have much left to lose. They have already made their views known. And while they're not considered dangerous or, or under suspicion um, it's, they can't separate themselves from those beliefs anymore. So, but to have another sister, Jessica, not just espouse a different political perspective and doctrine, but to act on it in the way that she did, to go and basically play a a significant role in in the Spanish Civil War, to become a journalist, to decamp to the United States and become heavily involved in the communist movement in America, and then a journalist exposing all these different practices that are corrupt in American society, it's like, these these girls were where did they come from, right? And how did they have the beliefs that they have and have the moxie to just set out and do these things, no matter how reprehensible? They're they they're mind boggling the things that they accomplished. And had two of the sisters, Nancy um, and Diana, excuse me, in Unity been able to do what they had hoped to do, to to really follow through on their plans? Who knows? what the outcome of World War II might have been. Um, Well, I
1: think probably a deeper dive into their parents might, you know, I would really like to know why Lady Riesdale was so sympathetic to Germany. The father was famously eccentric and, you know, but but they were people who didn't make good decisions. So you wonder how it all, anyway, um, there is some tension in the book, um, because it's not just, it's not a biography, it's it's, it's yeah. fiction. And part of that has to do, we won't go into it, with Nancy trying to decide what to do about Diana and unity. Um, and, you know, whether she should betray her sisters, so to speak. Or So family loyalties and politics are a really difficult mix for all the Medfords throughout the book. Um, as I've mentioned, I think Deborah would have had more trouble if if the family she married into had pushed her in that, but they apparently didn't, which I think speaks it's amazing.
2: To uh, I mean, amazing. really amazing. I would say most other families like that family would have had trouble with that choice of a bride, even That's for absolutely the
1: spirit. true. Let's remember that Mr. Darcy didn't actually have much in the way of relatives. when he married Elizabeth <laughs> Bennett. You know, there we go. Patrick, why don't we call you up and see whether we've produced any questions. Um, And while Patrick's coming up, I would like to say that one of the things I've always really admired Marie, but one of the reasons that I particularly like her is in the article I mentioned in Shelf Awareness, somebody asked her about an influence or her favorite book. And here's what she said. Could anything ever surpass the childhood delight of falling into the wardrobe alongside the Pevensey siblings? reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. We bonded right there, kid. I mean, I think anybody who loves The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is right there. My person. Yep, absolutely. All right, Patrick, what what might we have
2: scared up?
0: Well, um, let's see, Patricia asks, do you think Diana was a sociopath?
2: Ooh, great question. I think I don't think it's sociopath. Um I don't you know Diana is truly enigmatic. She's such an unusual peculiar mix of of qualities. I definitely think she was a narcissist for yeah. sure. She had um, an absolute belief that everything revolved around her, and when I say her, Mosley really like we were talking about before, Barbara. She she really Mosley is like almost subsumed in her. He becomes part of her self identity as well, and and in her mind, everything revolves around them, and the world should the world should the world should fall at their feet, and he should become their leader because of course he they knows what's best for all. And so I think, I mean, I think if I were to give her any label, and there's probably quite a few you could give her, I would say that's the one that fits the best. And that also kind of goes hand in hand with her absolute belief in her ability to move mountains. You know, she had, and and of course she was successful in that, right? But a sociopath, I don't know. So I don't know that a sociopath would have the ability to manipulate in quite the way that she did but possibly that's a great question though that's it awesome. is i also think
1: you know that what the reason she what? never i was just gonna say i think the reason she never gave up on mostly is that she was unwilling to ever admit defeat or that she her judgment had been fault you don't know for sure that towards the end she you know felt the same way about him but i think she was never ever going to admit that you know she couldn't have
0: whatever she wanted
2: that's exactly right. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's true. Ah, is this that is interesting.
0: interesting. Denise, who's watching, uh, she says, I recently led a discussion on Once Upon a Wardrobe. Patty Cal. Yeah. Oop.
2: You just froze. I'm sorry. Pat- no, he didn't. I don't know what happened there. Something okay, about Once Upon a um, Wardrobe.
1: I did find something, while we're waiting for Patrick to come back, um, I did find something that I thought in this Lisa Schellinger's review of the Duchess's um, biography. The Midford household was rumbustious. Guests could expect verbal abuse from the hot-tempered Lord Reedsdale and teasing from the sisters, who conversed in made-up languages and possessed a clashing array of temperaments and opinions. Nancy the eldest became the author of various arch novels about the upper classes she writes of the heart one critic noted with the most engaging heartlessness isn't that a great line
2: <laughs> the most that. engaging heartlessness right. I love that I think that's that that sums her up to a T and I think that quality is what set up the competitiveness between the yeah. sisters you know that sense that you were barely tolerated and occasionally you might be included in the fold, but then at any given moment you might be out. You might be out, ousted with, you know, just an acerbic comment. Like you never knew where you stood. And I think you know that, and the faction creation, and the nicknames, and the secret language, which not everybody spoke, but only some of them did. I think it created almost, you know, and un- the ground upon which they tread was unstable at all times, and so they were always jockeying for position, right. whether with their sisters or in the world at large. And I think, you know, for unity, that meant the only way she could get her sort of due in her position was to stand on the shoulders of someone who she deemed to be the most powerful and the most um, significant. Yeah. Adolf Hill. They
1: were also a pack. I mean, they were kind of a feral pack,
0: no question. Oh,
2: you back. Are you back? Andrew? Oh, we got visual. Oh, you're muted.
0: Here we go. Did there I completely disappear for a while? For a while? Yes. You're from? Yeah, I got this thing saying uh, your connection is unstable. Yeah. And I said, that okay. makes You were about to ask a question, though. So if you can oh. find it. Yeah, hold on a second. Um, Okay, so you didn't hear me say, uh, well, Denise was mentioning that she'd recently led a discussion on Once Upon a Wardrobe, uh, Patty Callahan's book about the origin story of Narnia. And she yeah. says that the love of Narnia and Lewis's writing was evident.
2: <laughs> heard about oh, that I love I love that book. The Patty did such a good job of like taking those so powerful stories, which are almost, you know, mythic in their own way. And creating, you know, an origin around them, which I loved. It's a great book.
0: Right. Um, let's see. Ellen has made the comment. She says, "I was uncomfortable with humanizing Unity and Diana." Has anyone else felt that way?
2: I was uncomfortable humanizing Diana okay. and Unity. Um, you know, that was the hardest thing about writing this book was getting into the headspace of these most incomprehensible awful women. Um, it really was it. Um, it's why I wrote there in part why I wrote their storylines in the third person. Um, you know, I almost always write in the first person and I could not get that close to these two sisters. I just, I could only go so far and no more. And, um, you know, there's other reasons why I chose that, but that was certainly one of them. I, I think the thing that allowed me to do that and it, which was very uncomfortable, which was very challenging and difficult, especially the scenes with Hitler, um, was that I one of the reasons, one of the things that brought me to this story was to try and understand how in modern times people can hold very polarizing views, how people can be attracted to more fringe, extreme uh, political um, ideologies, and to do that, I, I really wanted to understand that not sympathize or not empathize with it but to understand how it can transpire because it seems so incomprehensible to me and to do that um, I had to get inside them to a certain extent and look at the world look at the characters look at the movements through their eyes and what I learned at least in their case is that it was never the sense that a particular ideology was right that drove them to make the choices that they did and and hold the beliefs that they did. It was always something personal driving it with, um, as we talked about Barbara with unity, it was this great void she had in herself about who she was. She needed to have that void filled by the, the borrowed glory of someone she deemed to be magnificent and have that reflected uh, prominence with Diana. You know, she she subsumed Mosley into her sort of sense of self. And as part of that, she wanted to do whatever she could to elevate him and bind him to her, make him beholden to her. And so she pursued the belief system and the, the actions that she thought would bring them into even more of a unit than they already were. So none of those have really anything to do with the political systems and beliefs themselves. They have everything to do with the personal. And um, for me, that was really revelatory going through that process and, um, and seeing how they kind of arrived at those actions. And the only way I could do it was to really rely on their letters, um, to really rely on their depictions of these political figures and these rallies. And and I was able to see exactly how personal it was, how it had everything to do with them and not as much as you might believe about the movements.
1: So as historians, they're unreliable for sure. Uh. So. You know,
2: and I mean think
1: about think about how history is going to look back at let's say Justice Thomas and his wife Ginny. How's anybody ever going to make any sense out of that relationship and what has gone on with it? I did find one other thing I wanted to mention because we've been talking about Deborah so much. And then this again, Lisa, I think makes a really good point. In 1920, when Debo at last made the scene, i.e. she was born, the family drama was well advanced, casting her in the role of extra and i oh, think that we explain a great deal about you know, it's a really
2: insightful essay i love that you yeah. know what that was probably the biggest gift deborah ever got yeah an extra in that in that drama the youngest yeah yeah that was her that was her salvation
1: anything else Bandra?
0: um let's see here here's a simple one um is Marie going to be at any book conferences this year?
2: Oh gosh, I'm doing loads of events, but I don't think I have any conferences on my um, calendar yet. You never know; the year is young, um, and lots. Of, I have another book coming out in June, so maybe, maybe with respect to that one, we'll time will tell. But um, is that the
1: one you're doing with the other author?
2: Yeah, with Victoria. Mm-hmm. And That's what cool. are you what are you writing about then? Yeah, so that book is called The First Ladies, and it's the story of the friendship between Eleanor Roosevelt and someone that we do not know as well, but should, um, Mary McLeod Bethune. She was um, the 15th child in a family, the firstborn free, and she was incredibly well-educated, formed a college, an HBCU in Florida called Bethune-Cookman. And during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, when she was at the peak of her power, she was a fame one of probably one of the most famous Black people in America, but she was also uh, an, a formidable uh, proponent for equality. And she and Eleanor became like secret BFFs starting in the 1920s. You know, it was segregation, Jim Crow, that was not something that was acceptable. And um, these women were incredibly close. And as Eleanor rose up in power, First Lady of New York, and then the United States, they worked behind the scenes to really form the foundation for the civil rights movement. And so much of the accomplishments that these two women had are things that we all know about, but we have no idea that they effectuated. It's
1: fascinating. Good for yeah, You it's, I think it's, that's a wonderful topic. Anything else, Pete? I don't think so. Right, well, we've About been it. keeping, Marie. I promise that we will hold us to an hour. because It has been
2: such up. a treat. I've absolutely loved every minute of it. Well, thank you. Um, I'm going to
1: see if I can copy this Lisa Schlesinger essay. I would
2: love From the, to the New
1: York that. Times to send it to you because it really is fascinating. Um, oh, okay.
2: some really quips that are worthy of the midfords that's for yeah, sure no excellent so um
1: again marie's not oh, wrong one i keep holding <laughs> up the duchess <laughs> but that's a good one too oh, i have that one also here by marie right um here we go by marie bennett and um benedict and um i have one of our few signed copies in my hand but i'm going to take it down to the bookstore so we can sell it to one yeah. of you and of course, we can always order unsigned copies. Always more. truth is, not everybody needs an autographed copy. So <laughs> but I'm happy to listen.
2: oblige whenever i no, it's
1: very nice. So, anyway, thanks for spending time with us. Thank very you enjoyed.
2: so much. It was and such a many pleasure. Thank
1: all of you who've taken time to watch it. Do tell your friends because this interview will live forever in our Facebook and YouTube channels. And there'll be a podcast available in a couple of days, too. So you can spread the word. Bye.
0: Thank
2: you. Bye.
1: Hello.